Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. And we're going to kind of reference Matthew 12. I believe we have the parallel account uh, in Matthew 12. Just because of a lot of the similarities that we find between there and, and Mark chapter 3. And uh, in our passage today, in the study that we're going to look at, uh, we're going to see people stretching to some extremes in their view of who Jesus was. Uh, we see some people rejecting Jesus completely, um, coming up with some crazy ideas of who he was and how he operated. Um, we're going to see some of his own friends and family members uh, say that he's crazy. And they were going to go try to, to help him to res rescue, I say in uh, quotation marks there, rescue him from, from what he was facing. But what we have is we have clear evidences in front of the multitudes that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah. We have clear evidence in front of them, but yet we have people rejecting him or thinking that he's crazy. We have people claiming Jesus to be operating under the power of Satan. Imagine that. And here we're not talking about just anyone with these views of Jesus, not just some stranger off the street who has never heard of Jesus. We are talking about his friends, his family. We're talking about the religious leaders of the day. So the ones who would have been kind of directing people's minds in, in leadership, helping, trying to help people with different, uh, I guess, religious ways, if you will. These people were claiming Jesus to be operating under the power of the devil. That's just unreal to me. We have people that observe Jesus frequently and closely, rejecting the reality of who Jesus was. Jesus confronts them and their claims logically, clearly, and precisely. And we'll see that. You're probably familiar somewhat with this passage. But Jesus is going to lay it out plainly to them. Hey, reject me, blaspheme, my, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and this is the consequence, this is the result. But let's look at our text together. It's a lot of verses. I have a lot of notes today. Um, I tried not to, I just do. Um, but let's look at the, the passage together. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse number 20. And the multitude <clears throat> cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils, Casteth he out devils? And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man. And then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and 
and blasphemies, wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother um, and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or who my, or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I, I thank you for this time we can come together. Thank you that we can look into your word and see um, the, these truths that you have for us, that we can look back to this story, to this account, uh, when you impacted these real-life people in a real way. I pray that you'll just give me clarity of thought, that, that you will help me to say the, the right things, that, that uh, you'll just give me the words to say, Father, thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us. I pray that we will point all glory and honor and praise to you today. You're so faithful. You're so worthy of praise. Uh, you, you are so good. I pray that you will guide our hearts and our minds today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let's start. Let's jump right into it. Verses 20 and 21. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. So I want you to, to picture what's going on here. We have Jesus trying to eat a meal with his disciples, with some of his followers here, with the apostles. They go into a house to eat this meal, which is a normal occurrence. Jesus and the disciples having a meal. They, they have to eat. Okay, so they go to have this meal. People hear where Jesus was, which is a normal occurrence again. And the people try to come into this house, try to come into this place, and there are so many people packing into this place that Jesus and his disciples aren't able to eat the meal that they're trying to eat. So, again, pretty, pretty normal occurrence. We have people messing up dinner time for Jesus. It says here, Jesus' friends. Now, I want to tell you what I believe here and what I believe is going on. I'll tell you why we connect this verse down to verse 31. It, verse 21 calls it his, his friends. I believe in this group of friends would have been his family members. We know some of his half-brothers and half-sisters didn't, didn't believe on him until a little, little later in the story here. So, as we talk about them, I believe that this friends is also talking about his family that would come down. They hear what's going on, so they're going to go try to rescue Jesus or try to help him out of this situation. Like Jesus is in trouble, like there's too many people around him, and he would need help from people. So we have his family and friends on their way to help Jesus. We know Jesus is God. We know Jesus is all-powerful. We know that he doesn't need help in this situation from his friends or family. So what they're going to do, they're going to go to him. What's their excuse? Why are they going to go to him? Why are they... What are they going to say to the people? What are they saying amongst themselves? Look at verse 21. For they said, he is beside himself. What does that mean? They're, they're saying that Jesus was crazy. 
that Jesus had taken things a little bit too far, that Jesus was confused about some things. So it's like they're saying, Jesus doesn't know what he's doing here. He's going a little crazy here. We need to go. We need to help him out. The definition is to lay hold on him or to seize him. They went to get Jesus to try to help him out, to get him out of this situation. So they're trying to remove Jesus from his current situation. So picture this playing out, all right? Because this is part of the story we're going to catch back up to in the bottom here. They told the people Jesus is beside himself. Jesus is out of his mind. Jesus is insane. That's a shocking statement for me to think about, though his friends or his family thinking that. Um, but think about his half-brothers and sisters who would have watched him grow up. A uh, normal kid with the exception of he was always perfect, always right. So they had this experience with him, and then down the road they see Jesus continuing on his path, continuing to be obedient to the Father, and their response is, Jesus is taking this a little too far. We can see doubt from some of his family and friends. And we can see them addressing, he's out of his mind a little bit here. Jesus continues with his obedience to the Father, though. In the parallel passage, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. So this is kind of the introduction to this story of this opinion that these scribes and the Pharisees are going to have of him. So there is a man, a demon-possessed man, a devil-possessed man brought to Jesus. He's blind. He's also dumb. He's unable to speak, probably also deaf. So imagine this man being brought to Jesus. Jesus healed the man. He healed him in so much that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. So it wasn't just a theory that, you know, Jesus cast out this demon, there's, there's no, no proof of it. No, there was proof of it that the devil was gone and this man was healed. He could, he could speak, he could see, he was functioning well. Consider that for a moment. Consider being able to see that take place. To be a part of that miracle unfolding. I mean, that should give you like a little bit of goosebumps or something to see Jesus proving his deity in this, this miracle, in a way that can be seen and, and touched and heard. So we could see these evidences unfolding. Jesus performs a miracle. He shows his power over devils. He shows his power over physical disabilities. As I said, gives evidence of his deity, gives evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew tells us that some people recognized who Jesus was. So they're, or they were at least questioning who Jesus was here. There, there's some positive kind of tucked in the middle here. Because Matthew 12, 23, And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? What are they talking about, the son of David? It's a messianic term here. They were saying, Is this the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? Is this the one that's been promised to us for years? Is this him? Some people saw it and they recognized who Jesus was and they started to talk, isn't this the Messiah? Okay, that's, that's great. We have the Pharisees and the scribes hearing this now. And you could imagine them not being too thrilled with this. 
Okay, because Jesus didn't have nice things to say to the scribes and the Pharisees. He called them out for who they were. Their problem was they were trusting in themselves and their works and their traditions in their righteousness, and they were rejecting the Messiah. So we have, we have that Jesus was the Messiah. I'm, they're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They were looking for someone else who would fit their mold better, who would come give them victory in battle and different victory over the Romans. So, but they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, so they hear the people talking about this Jesus. Could he be the Messiah? So they're going to combat this, what they're hearing from the people. They didn't appreciate someone challenging them in their self-righteous ways. That's how these people felt about Jesus. Their thought was that Jesus was not the Messiah they had imagined. Jesus operated differently than they thought the Messiah would or should, so they rejected him. Isn't that a sad thought? Jesus not being who they thought he should be, so they didn't want anything to do with him. In the face of many proofs, they rejected Jesus, and they were set on dragging others along with them down this path of rejection. Look at verse 22 in Mark chapter 3. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. They told the people Jesus was operating in the power of the devil. That's blasphemy. If they could make people believe Jesus was a representative of Satan, they could turn people against him. They responded to the people's response of, isn't this the Messiah? With, no, he's working under the power of Beelzebub. And we could go in, we could study that, the history of Beelzebub and all that. But what I want us to see big picture here is they were claiming Jesus was operating by the power of Satan. His power could only be explained by coming from one of two places, from God or from Satan. Right? His stuff he did was evidence of his deity, but they didn't want that. The scribes and Pharisees didn't want that, so they're going to give this credit to the devil, blaspheming God, blaspheming Jesus to his face, blaspheming the Holy Spirit here. Jesus claimed his power was from God. The scribes and the Pharisees called him a liar, and they claimed that his power was from the devil. That's pretty, pretty bold. Jesus combats their claims. And, and I told you he was, he was logical here. He was, he was plain here. He was clear here in the way that he combated these scribes and the Pharisees and their, their blasphemy. Look at verse 23. Then he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? So I want you guys to think about this, is what he says. You're saying I'm doing this by the power of Satan, but how can Satan cast out Satan? And why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would Satan do that? What would he be accomplishing in doing that? I want you guys to think about it. Look at verses 24, 25, 26. He's illustrating this through parables. And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And we can see that happening through the ages in, in real life examples of this happening. 
Then he says um, in verse 25, And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. We can see that happening over and over again. Verse 26, And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. So what the scribes are claiming is ridiculous. It's logical absurdity. Any house or kingdom warring against itself is headed for collapse. And the devil knows that. And the devil is pretty good at what he does. The devil doesn't deploy his agents to fight against each other. We can find many accounts of Jesus during his earthly ministry confronting, exposing, rebuking, and casting out demons. Right? Think about it. Think about our journey through the New Testament even so far. Think about what you know. We can see Jesus doing these miracles over and over again. And that should be ample evidence that Jesus was not working for the devil because he was thwarting the devil. Jesus' ministry was in complete opposition to what the devil was trying to accomplish. The devil was trying to destroy and to devour. Jesus was seek, trying to seek and to save that which was lost. Big contrast there. The scribes' claim was completely ridiculous and false. They hated and they rejected Jesus so much that they were willing to make such blasphemous claims. Jesus is stronger than Satan and has power over him. Jesus does not, did not need Satan to empower him. Look at verse 27. We see Jesus illustrate his point. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. If anyone wanted to take something from someone that was strong and powerful, they would first need to overpower them. Right? Like I'm going to have a hard time robbing you if, if I'm weaker than you and I can't continue. You'll just knock me out. Okay? And we have Jesus illustrating this point here. And we, we see through this, we see through history and, and what we know about the future, that Jesus is stronger than Satan. Amen. Jesus was stronger than Satan. He is stronger than Satan. He had and He has the power and the authority to enter His dominion and disperse His agents. The devil has power and authority on the earth, but Jesus is still greater. Jesus is still stronger. Jesus is still more powerful. And He displayed that throughout His earthly ministry. Jesus could and did do those things, giving evidence that He is God, because God alone has that type of power and authority. So, for the scribes and the Pharisees to give the credit to anyone else but God, especially to the devil, was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus has a strong warning for anyone that would do such a thing. Look at verses 28 and 29. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. 
But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. So Jesus here is making clear that people are aware of the seriousness of their blasphemy. They had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I want us to, to think about uh, and look at the context of this passage, of this powerful warning that Jesus gives. It was to a group of people that had completely rejected Jesus in the midst of a multitude of evidence. They had made up their mind to ultimately and finally reject Jesus to the point that they gave credit for his ministry to the devil. They were trying to lead others to believe the same thing. We can see that. Oops, that's not good. Think about the early ministry of Jesus. We're, we're trying to build this, this context here. Jesus was completely and perfectly submissive to the Father's will. Right? We can look at 1 John 4.34. We can look, or not 1 John, just John 4.34. We can look at John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. And we can see that Jesus was always obedient. He was always about the will of his Father. Jesus was wholly empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at Matthew 4, look at Mark 1, look at Luke 4, look at John 3. The Holy Spirit was actively at work through His whole ministry. We can see the Trinity involved in the earthly ministry of Jesus. From His birth to His ascension, Jesus operated under the control of the Holy Spirit in full obedience to the Father's will. Always. Those who had seen the overwhelming evidence of the Spirit's power in Jesus' ministry, yet still rejected Him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Those who chose to attribute the Spirit's empowering work to Satan were guilty of blasphemy or blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You see the tie there? You, you, you see the God, the Trinity working there? You see their rejection of Jesus would be rejection of God and of the Holy Spirit. They were working together in His ministry there. They had witnessed Jesus perform many miracles. They were aware of His casting out many demons. Look at verse 30. Because they said He hath an unclean spirit, they still accused Jesus of being a demon-possessed liar after all that they had seen Jesus do. Wow. Story after story, miracle after miracle, testimony after testimony, witnessing these different things, yet hating Jesus and rejecting Jesus so much that they would rob Him of His glory, of His authority, and they would try to give it to the devil. That's blasphemy. In the face of overwhelming evidence, they rejected and tried to drag others down with them. They had permanently hardened their hearts against the Messiah. And the result of such blasphemous rejection is not being forgiven. forgiven. There's no forgiveness there. They're not even looking for forgiveness. 
there's rejection. And the result is not being forgiven. They were making clear their final conclusion about Jesus. As verse 29 says, But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Their rejection led them to danger of eternal damnation. Even after this strong warning from Jesus, like you would think this warning would make them think a little bit. Even after this strong warning from Jesus, they continued in their rejection, further proving the truth that Jesus said, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then describes the apostate heart that with full knowledge has irrevocably rejected the one to whom the Spirit points. That is why it is an eternal sin, because no forgiveness is possible to those who refuse to stop rejecting Christ. Now, I want to read that again. Those aren't my words. I borrowed them from a, a commentator. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then, describes the apostate heart, or the heart rejecting God, turning from God, denying God, that with full knowledge has irrevocably rejected the one to whom the Spirit points. That is why it is an eternal sin, because no forgiveness is possible to those who refuse to stop rejecting Christ. It's an interesting series of events that happens next. Jesus' family shows up at the scene. Jesus uses the opportunity to teach a spiritual truth to those who believe in him. Look at verse number 31. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. So we learned in verse 21 that there was some close people to him that thought Jesus was out of his mind a little bit, that he was not in his right state of mind. Verse 31, we have some family members coming to try to help him. So they're talking through the crowd. Verse 32, And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. So the people try to help Jesus' family out. They try to tell Jesus, Hey, Jesus, your family's here. They have something to say to you. They want to talk to you. I mean, we could imagine this, this playing out. Like your family's kind of far away. You're in a meeting, and they show up. They're out in the lobby like, hey, your family's here. Maybe the receptionist comes in. Hey, your family's here. Right? They want to talk to you. Came a long ways. They had a journey, something important to say. We have Jesus using this opportunity to teach a spiritual truth. Verse 33, And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? So Jesus, knowing all things, knowing exactly who his mother and his brethren were, uses this to teach the people. And he asks the people, who, who really is my mother and my brethren? Don't take this as a disrespect to his mother and his family that was standing out trying to get a hold of him. We know Jesus loved his family. We know Jesus cared about his family. So he's not being rude or insensitive here. He's trying to teach the people something. Verses 34 and 35. And he looked round about on them, which sat about him and said, 
Behold, my mother and my brethren. So he had people in this room close to him. Remember that we're trying to eat a meal and it got ruined. And he says, who are my mother and my brethren? Verse 34, behold, my mother and my brethren. He, he, he speaks of those in the room with him who had believed on him, who had trusted in him. Verse 35, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. So what's the big picture here? The relationship that matters to Jesus is spiritual, not physical. His spiritual family is made up of those who have a relationship with him through faith. And you can see this contrast here as you go through these passages. You can see the contrast of genuine followers of Jesus and then you can see those who are rejecting Jesus and who are blaspheming against Jesus, who don't believe in Jesus. Genuine disciples do the will of God by honoring Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. John 6, 40, And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at that last day. Some view Jesus as crazy. Some view Jesus as a liar. His true followers viewed him as Lord. They obeyed the will of the Father and believed on his Son that the Holy Spirit bears witness of. And they received eternal life and forgiveness. Those who truly believe respond with obedience. And those who reject Jesus as Lord and blaspheme the Holy Spirit will spend an eternity in separation from God. Those who obey the will of God by believing on Jesus as their Lord and their Savior are promised eternal life in heaven, where we as family members of Jesus will have the privilege of worshiping our risen King forever. What an incredible opportunity and privilege. The thought of being able to eternally be with God, to give Him praise and glory and honor, to have that, that understanding of, of what He's done, what He's sacrificed, what, what He's given, and then spend forever praising Him for it. He's so worthy of that praise. And I'm so thankful for the way that he works, the, uh, the way that he works redemption through the death of his son and the shed blood of his, his son and, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, proving that he is more powerful than death and sin and hell. And the way that he works, that he, that he draws, that he compels us to himself. And the way that we, by faith, can trust in him and believe on him as our Lord and our Savior. I'm so thankful for the way that he works, for how faithful that he is. And I want to ask, what's, what's your view or your belief of Jesus? Do you believe he is Lord? He is Amen. King? Amen. He is the Messiah? He is the only one that could make that satisfactory payment to meet God's just demands. 
I hope and pray that you're not rejecting that truth, but that you believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he'll do what he said he would do. And for those of us who have believed and who do believe, let's continually praise him. He's so good. I'm so thankful for what he has done. Let's pray.